Today we actually do bring our study of Hebrews to a close. As I mentioned last week, this final chapter is more an appendix to the letter than anything else. In fact, there's a limerick that pretty well describes what our author is trying to do in the 13th chapter of Hebrews. There was a young poet of Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, he replied, yes, I know, but I try to get as many words in the last line as I can. <laughs> well, having concluded his main argument in the 12th chapter, our author now tries to get in the last word on just about every aspect of the Christian life. He's determined to get in some final words about Christian conduct, Christian faith, Christian worship, Christian obedience. And he does a pretty good job of squeezing all of this into 25 verses. So let's see how he does it. And while we're looking, let's see what it is he has to say as well. He begins with final words about Christian conduct. Hebrews 13, the first six verses. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? In rapid fire succession, our author hits on love, hospitality, compassion, purity, and contentment. He begins by reminding his readers to let love of the brethren continue. Apparently, they were already showing love to one another. But he wanted to make sure that in the face of persecution, they didn't develop a case of social amnesia. You know, it's easy to love and show love for each other when things are going well, and it doesn't cost you to love. But if identifying with someone who's being persecuted opens you up to the risk of being persecuted also, it's easy to pretend you don't know them, to walk by on the other side of the street. Our author is here reminding them and us that we're family. And as such, we have an obligation to show love for one another for better or for worse. And not only are we to show love to those we know, but to those we don't know, to strangers. Now, there's no way to tell whether he's talking about Christians you don't know personally or just strangers in general. It's true that there was a real need to show hospitality to traveling Christians in the first century. The public inns were expensive and generally operated by persons of questionable character. So showing hospitality to traveling evangelists and displaced Christians was essential. 
But there's no need to rule out hospitality to total strangers. Our homes are to be places of ministry. And just because someone doesn't share our faith is no reason to slam the door in their face. Besides, the strangers we welcome may end up being very special. Abraham and Lot didn't know the strangers they entertained were angels. Now, that's not to suggest we should be expecting angels to drop in all the time, but we never know who's going to prove to be an unexpected blessing in our lives. Then our author notes that we're not only to respond to the needs of those who turn up on our doorsteps, but to those unable to come to us as well. He notes that in particular we should remember those in prison and those who are ill-treated. And when he says remember, he's not saying just think about them, but do something about their needs. We're to care for their needs as if we were in prison with them. We're to sympathize with them, remembering that just as we have needs, so do they. Now, I don't believe this is a mandate for prison reform. That Christians have an obligation to make life for prisoners across the land as pleasant as possible. Nor is this a mandate for prison ministries. I know that text is used that way quite often. That's not to say that we shouldn't try to reach prisoners with the gospel or minister to them. They are as much in need of Christ as anyone else. But that's not what our author is talking about. He's talking about Christians, those in the body who had been imprisoned because of their faith. They weren't to be forgotten. They were to be visited and cared for. Next, he has something very important to say about the need for sexual purity. And it begins by making it clear that marriage is an honorable estate. It's part of God's plan. God created us, sexual beings, and the legitimate expression of that nature is part of God's plan for most of us. The marriage bed, however, is to be undefiled. We are not to come to it as fornicators from a life of premarital sexual experimentation, nor are we to come to it as adulterers, as those who seek sexual fulfillment apart from the exclusive relationship of husband and wife. And even though many in our society say these things are acceptable today, we must never forget that God will judge fornicators, and adulterers according to his standard, not society's. Lastly, in the area of Christian conduct, our author has something very important to say about the need for contentment. He says we must be free from the love of money, recalling what Paul had to say about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. He admonishes us to be content with what we have. Now, that is not to say it's wrong to seek to improve our economic condition. 
We should be good stewards of the resources and abilities God has given to us. And the parable of the talents made it clear that being productive is not wrong. In fact, it's expected for us to be productive. We are not, however, to be consumed by greed. Nor are we to make the acquisition of things the top priority in life. And recognizing that the craving for more and more often comes from the fear of want and destitution, he reminds us that God will not forsake us. He'll see to it that our needs are always met. So in the area of Christian conduct, the author of Hebrews reminds us of the need for love, hospitality, compassion, purity, and contentment. Next, he has final words about faith. Verses 7 through 14. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For these bodies, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Our author makes the transition from conduct to faith by calling to mind the conduct of former leaders in the church. He asks his readers to remember those who led them in the past and to consider the result of their conduct, the outcome of their way of life. Indeed, it was their faith that motivated them and guided them. His readers would therefore do well to imitate their faith. After all, their faith was built upon the same Jesus his readers worshipped. And served. And since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the same faith would produce similar results in their lives if they would stick by it and not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Now, just what varied and strange teachings were circulating in that day, we're not sure. Apparently, the ones he had reference to had to do with restrictions on diet. It seems there's always been a tendency to link commitment to God with a legalism concerning externals, especially with what you eat or don't eat. In fact, at one time, God made an issue of it. But with the vision he sent to Peter at Joppa, he made it clear that that was no longer to be an issue. The Jewish Christians, however, had a very hard time letting go of those taboos. And for years, tried to force them on their Gentile brethren. 
We also know that Paul had to deal with a hotly debated issue of eating meat offered to idols, even though Jesus had taught that it wasn't what went into a man that defiled him, but what came out. Whether one of these was the issue here or not, we can't be sure. But it did have to do with gaining standing before God through food instead of grace. The mention of legalistic observances as opposed to grace apparently brought the difference between the Old and New Covenants to our author's mind again. And in one last illustration, he seeks to impress again upon his readers the impossibility of going back to Judaism. He said, as Christians, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, this is a bit problematic in understanding here. And while we can't be dogmatic about the exact meaning, he seems to be saying that those who hold to the old covenant, symbolized by the tabernacle, cannot partake of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Just as the remains of the animals offered on the Day of Atonement were burned outside the camp of Israel, so Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. And in a symbolic way, this is telling us that we can't remain bound to the earthly Jerusalem and partake of the benefit of Jesus' sacrificial death. We've got to go outside the camp of earthly Israel to be with our Lord. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders and cast out of their city. So we must be willing to bear his reproach and break ties with an earthly city if we want to be a part of God's eternal city. The faith we are to cling to is a faith based not on strange new doctrines or legalistic practices or the shadows of the Old Testament, but upon Jesus and his special relationship to the Father in heaven. The book of Hebrews was written to make this perfectly clear, and our author wanted to say it just one more time. Then he shares with us his final words about worship. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. As we've seen time and time again in Hebrews, Jesus' death was the sacrifice that paid the penalty for sin. And nothing we do can add to the effectiveness of his sacrifice. It's impossible for anything we do to in any way balance out the sin in our lives. Jesus' death and his death alone pays for our sin and makes forgiveness possible. We are, however, expected to show gratitude for what he has done. Paul told us to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices and that to do so was a reasonable act of worship. In a similar way, the author of Hebrews tells us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now again, the sacrifice in no way gains privilege for us. It merely demonstrates our gratitude 
for what we have in Jesus. It's an expression of thanksgiving for the love and mercy God has shown to us. Now, just what constitutes, what, what is this sacrifice of praise? Well, it begins with the fruit of lips. It's a verbal expression of thankfulness. God wants us to tell him we're thankful. Don't just say, well, he knows it. God wants to hear it. So much of our speaking, singing, and praying in worship should be expressions of thanksgiving. But our sacrifice of praise isn't to stop with words alone. It also is to take the form of doing good and sharing. As we've noticed before, worship and service is often the same thing. In fact, one particular word in the Greek is translated either way. We worship God primarily by the lives we live. Everything we do should be an act of worship. So obviously what we do should be good, and we show our gratitude for God's provision by sharing what we have with others. When we realize that we don't deserve what we have, that all we have from our material blessings to our eternal life is a gift from God, we cannot be selfish. We have to share it with others freely. We have received, so freely we give. And it's our giving that is an expression of sacrifice, of praise. It's not an attempt to buy God's favor. It's a way of showing gratitude for the favor he has already shown us. That, I think, is worship. We sometimes think in terms of worship simply as singing songs. It's so much more than that. Worship is showing gratitude to God by our speaking, our living, the lives that we live, and our giving. Before he closes his letter, the author of Hebrews wants to make sure we understand that. Then he has some final words about obedience. He begins with an admonition to obey our leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The author has already told us to imitate the faith of former leaders. Now he tells us to obey our current leaders. And the leaders he has in mind are leaders in the church, the elders, the shepherds, who have been given responsibility to keep watch over a congregation. And since the elders will have to give an account for their job of shepherding, for their feeding and leading of the flock of God over which they have been made shepherds. And since that is a big responsibility, our author tells us to make their job as easy as possible. We're not to intentionally give the shepherds grief. We're to go along with them, to submit 
to their leadership. Now, of course, the assumption is that they are qualified to lead, that they know God's Word, and that they are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in congregational matters as well as in their own lives. To help assure this, I think the author's request for prayer on his behalf should be expanded to include prayer for all leaders in the church. We should always pray that our leaders make decisions that are in keeping with God's revealed and discerned will. They have a good conscience before him and conduct themselves honorably in all things. If they do that, we should have no trouble obeying them and submitting to their decisions. Then in the midst of his benediction, he reminds us to be obedient to God. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. His prayer is that the God of peace, the God who puts men at peace with himself and with each other, the God who raised up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, equip us to do his will. And that is the secret of obedience to God. It's not trying to do what he wants on our own. It's allowing him to equip us, to give us what we need to do his will. On our own, we are incapable of pleasing God. Without our great shepherd to lead us and to provide for us, it's impossible to please God. In fact, it's only by allowing the risen Christ to actually live His life through us that we are able to please our Father in heaven. And that, of course, rules out all other religions and all other roads to heaven. It's only through Christ that we are able to please God. It's only through Him that we can be obedient to our Heavenly Father. And in His final greeting, He exhorts us to be obedient to the Word. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take note that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. His final exhortation is to bear with what he has written, to heed his words, to obey what he said. And since this letter is accepted as inspired of God, and was therefore placed in the canon of Scripture, we can rightfully expand his exhortation to include all of God's Word. If we heed what is written in the Word of God, and through the enabling of His Holy Spirit obey it, we can truly know a God of peace. And we can experience His grace 
eternally. I believe that's a fitting conclusion to our study of Hebrews. The most beautiful letter that powerfully points to Jesus and Jesus alone as the way, the truth, and the life. You know, we need to hear this message over and over again. It's not a message that is widely held in society or sadly even in churches today. I've shared with many conversations I've had with a man I respect very much, a man I met at Bethesda, he's a retired surgeon. He retired early from his practice so he could spend all of his time on the mission field. He has been all over the world ministering to people physically. He still doesn't understand his faith identity. He keeps saying, well, we just need to meditate and be in sync and be in tune and all this Discussion the other day, and a bystander joined in. He got really in his face. So much that 